0: Well, we are in Matthew chapter 12 still, and uh, when you are trying to, well, when I, I guess, if someone were trying to figure out which verses to preach in a sermon, uh, sometimes there's a struggle uh, because uh, a bunch of verses that, you know, 28 or 29 verses like we have this morning make up one big idea, uh, but that's a lot of verses to read before a sermon, uh, and so what I've decided to do this morning for time's sake is just take a selection, actually just two verses uh, from this passage to read before the sermon, uh, and, and then we'll unpack it as we go. Uh, so we're in Matthew chapter 12, uh, looking at verses 22 to 50, but we're actually going to read verse 30 and 31. Now, that'll be on 1,500... And 16. Oh, no. 15. Jesus says in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Matthew began his gospel uh, by telling us in the very first chapter that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so as Matthew tells the rest of the story, what, what he's doing is he's, he's backing up that, that massive claim That he made in chapter 1. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Backing up that claim that he made in chapter 1. God appears at Jesus' baptism. And tells him and us. That this is his son with whom he is well pleased. Jesus is a great teacher. A great miracle worker. He has power over nature, disease, demons, and death. So. Jesus is either who Matthew claims him to be, who Jesus himself claims to be, or he is not. There are only two options. And so, in our passage this morning, Matthew is going to clarify first the options that we have before us, and then he's going to show us the evidence that we do have to support the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he's going to tell us the evidence we don't need. Some might think the evidence we have isn't enough. And Jesus is going to make it clear that we have all the evidence we need. And finally, the impact of this decision. What happens in our life when we really do put all our trust in Jesus? So what are the options that we have before us? Well, up until this point, Jesus has not openly claimed to be the Son of David or the Messiah. In fact, he's telling people, don't tell other people what I've done for you to try to tamp down the uh, um, rumors that he is the Messiah. He's not calling himself the King of Israel. He's not building up an army. Instead, he's going around and humbly and powerfully teaching that the kingdom of God has come near. And the signs of his kingdom, they're not political or revolutionary. No, the signs of Jesus' kingdom are his power and his authority over sin and sickness and Satan. But his power is so great that even though he is not the political savior the people of Israel were expecting, they still can't help but wonder if he is the Messiah. And so we're told in verse 22 and 23. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now there's nothing significant about this particular healing. It seems as if this man was deaf and mute because of the demon, but it doesn't really matter. The point here is just to remind us that this is the kind of authority that Jesus has over sickness and over Satan. And that's the thing that causes all the crowds to wonder, could this be the son of David? Now the Pharisees have a different interpretation of Jesus' power. Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So they can't deny that he's driving out demons and that he's healing people. That's just patently obvious. And so they have to explain his power somehow. And so they're saying, oh no, he's getting his power from Beelzebul, which is a a Jewish name uh, for Satan or for the devil. And so those are our options. Jesus clearly has supernatural power. There are only two sources of supernatural power, God or Satan. Therefore, Jesus is either wielding God's power or Satan's power. And it's really no different now. Unlike the Pharisees, we now live in a time where someone can question whether Jesus really had miraculous power. And even though they deny his miracles, No one can deny that the heavens declare the glory of God. No one can deny that Jesus is the most significant historical figure over the last 2,000 years. His life and his teachings have shaped Western culture and have spread all over the globe. Lives are changed when people come to know Jesus. And so there's still only two options to explain these things. Are we going to accept Jesus' claims as true? Is he Lord and King, worthy of our worship? Is he the Son of God who became a human so that he could save his people from their sins by dying on a Roman cross and then setting up a spiritual kingdom that can never be conquered? Or is he something else? Just like the people who saw him in person, we must all decide whether he is who he claimed to be or not. There are only two options. As C.S. Lewis famously said, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There is only two options. Which takes us to our second point. What is the evidence we do have? Jesus' first piece of evidence is an argument, okay? We're told. Jesus knew the Pharisees' thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. So here's the argument from the Pharisees' point of view. Okay, premise number one, only God or the devil have miraculous power. Premise number two, Jesus is a sinner because he doesn't keep the law. Remember, he heals people on the Sabbath and he lets his disciples pick grain, so he's clearly a law breaker, okay? Therefore, conclusion, he must be driving out demons by the power of Satan. But Jesus says that argument doesn't work. First of all, he is the Lord of the Sabbath, but also it doesn't work because it doesn't make any sense. Generals don't kill their own troops on purpose. Governments, corporations, armies, families, they all fall apart if their members are not working together for the cause. So Jesus' argument goes like this. Premise number one, only God or the devil have miraculous power. Jesus is using his power to drive out the devil. Therefore, he must be driving out demons by the power of God because the devil would not be driving himself out. And then he says this, But if it is by the power of the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, which of course it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. You see, since Jesus is not working for Satan... He must be bringing the kingdom of God to plunder Satan's house. Therefore, the kingdom of God is here, Jesus is saying. The evidence that I am plundering his house should be obvious to you. My kingdom is right here. What are you going to do? He's doing good. He's conquering evil and injustice. And so the question before the Pharisees and every human being is, are you with him or not? Which is why in the very next verse, Jesus says this, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the kingdom has come. We're either with him or against him. We're either part of the flock that he's gathering or we're scattering. So not only are there only two options, but there's no in between. There's no fence sitters. There's no people with one foot in and one foot out. To not choose between the two options, Jesus is saying, is to reject Jesus. Okay, Jesus' second piece of evidence is the fact that he is the only one who can forgive every sin and slander. He goes on. He says, And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Did you hear that? Now some of you heard, Wow, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Others of us heard, well, what about that sin that can't be forgiven? And I think think that's because a lot of times we're afraid that Jesus will break a bruised reed, that Jesus will snuff out a flickering candle. And that's why in our passage last week, Jesus said, no, he will never break a bruised reed. He will never blow out a barely burning wick. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. You may have come here this morning feeling weighed down by sin and guilt. You may have come here this morning struggling with pressures in this life that are not your fault. We all have different struggles, we have a heavy hand upon us in many different ways. But the beautiful truth that we all need to hear is that every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. This is the best news ever. Anyone who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Jesus enters his kingdom. All who are weary and burdened may come. And then their sins are gone. They're all put away as far as the east is from the west. And a lot has been made about this sin that will not be forgiven that Jesus talks about here. People wonder all the time what it is and if they've committed it. But this is a warning directed at the Pharisees. That it's possible to resist the testimony of the Holy Spirit, who is pointing them to Jesus so consistently over time that their heart will become so hard during this lifetime that it's impossible to repent. And Jesus is directing that at the Pharisees because they are calling him the devil. They are saying he's in cahoots with Satan. And he wants them to know that that kind of darkness of heart, if you you hold on to it over time, Pharisees, You may never be able to repent. But Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't blow out smoldering wicks. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. All we must do is believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus' third piece of evidence is the fruit of his influence. He goes on. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So Jesus' point is very simple. If you have repented of your sin... Put your faith in him, then you have been fundamentally changed. You've gone from being a dead tree that produces no fruit to being a good tree that produces good fruit. But this is also another warning directed at the Pharisees. They're using their mouths to say that Jesus is the Son of God working for the devil which means no matter how good they look on the outside, in order to say such evil things about the Son of God, it means there's evil stored up in their hearts. Which is why Jesus goes on to say, "'But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned.'" You see, our words, more than anything, reveal the reality of our heart. If our heart's been transformed by the love and grace of Jesus, then love and grace more and more will come out of our mouths. Because a good tree produces good fruit. And on the day of judgment, we will be acquitted. Because it will be clear from the way we lived our lives and the words we spoke that we truly did repent of our sins, and put our trust in Jesus. So we know that Jesus is who he says he is then, because there's no other explanation for his power and influence that makes any sense. Satan would not plunder himself. We know he is who he says he is because only he can forgive every sin and slander that we've committed. And if we're with him, we will become a good tree that produces good fruit. And our faith will be vindicated on the judgment day because of that fruit. Okay, but is this evidence enough? Next point, the evidence we don't need. Now we can imagine someone saying to Jesus at this point, well, that's not enough for me, Jesus. And maybe that's how you feel right now. Maybe you're doubting Jesus' claims about himself. Or maybe you don't doubt Jesus at all. You are 100% on the Jesus train, but you're wondering to yourself, how can this be enough for a friend of mine or a relative of mine who doesn't believe? If they heard everything that Jesus just said right now, would that be enough to make them put their faith in Jesus? Don't they need to see Jesus's love through me? Don't they need a, a philosophical argument Don't they need to see some archaeological evidence or a logical, you know, proof for the resurrection? Don't we need a little more evidence than this to convince someone to fall down and worship Jesus as Lord and Savior? The Pharisees sure did. So they go on and they say this. And some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And I can just picture Jesus he didn't do this, but I could just picture him being like, did you not just see the demon that I cast out of this man and how he was deaf and mute and now he can hear and he can talk and there's no more demon. Did, did you not just see that? That wasn't enough of a sign for you. You see, the truth is no evidence would be enough for someone who doesn't want to believe. And only the gospel has the power to make someone want to believe. Let me say that again. No evidence is enough for someone who doesn't want to believe. So that's the problem. And the gospel is the thing that makes somebody want to believe. Jesus doesn't need to prove himself to anyone. He goes on Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, the reason no sign is enough is because, as Jesus says, they are a wicked and adulterous generation, which means they want their sin more than they want God's forgiveness. They want life on their terms more than they want to receive life on God's terms. And so Jesus tells them, you're not getting a sign except the sign of Jonah. And so Jesus now is pointing forward to his death and resurrection. Just like Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish and then rose again, Jesus is going to spend three days and three nights inside the earth. And then he's going to rise again. And that is the sign. Capital T-H-E. The sign. And it is still the sign. Listen to Paul. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, the good news that that Jesus died because sin is sin, and God cannot overlook sin. But God loves sinners so much that he would rather suffer in our place if only we would believe in him That simple message is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's the sign. It convicts us that our sin is so awful and worthy of judgment that Jesus had to die to forgive us. And it also assures us of God's love for us because he was willing to come and die to forgive us. Jesus goes on. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. For those of you who know the story of Jonah and those of you who don't, Basically, Jonah did not want to preach to the city of Nineveh because the Ninevites uh, came down and oppressed the Israelites for years and years. They attacked them constantly. And so when God called him to go to Nineveh to preach, he ran from God, ended up in the belly of a huge fish for three days. And after God saved him from that, he begrudgingly obeyed God, went to Nineveh, to preach. And here was his message. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it, that was his message. And they repented of their sin and believed. Well, where's the good news in that, Pastor Patrick? That sounds like a lot of judgment there. And here's the thing, right? The the reality of God's judgment is, is something we have to know. Because once we hear that there's no hope, right, we, we wonder, oh no, well, how can I be saved? And the Ninevites, they recognized this. We have no hope. They believed this word, and it caused them to repent in dust and ashes with the hope that God might relent. And as Jonah knew he would, God did relent. The queen of the south, otherwise known as the queen of Sheba, all she could have heard was rumors of Solomon's splendor and the the temple that he had built and the palace that he had built. And so she traveled from 1,500 miles away with no car, no train, no airplane to come and to look at what Solomon had done. Think about the wise men who brought baby Jesus his gifts. What did they know? Yet they believed and came and fell down before a baby in a manger. There's not a single one of us in this room that needs any more information than they had or that we already have right now to put all of our trust in Jesus. So take heart, Christian. Your faith is built on invincible promises. The power of God's Word and the testimony of His Holy Spirit in your heart is an amazing truth. But what about the person who says, Well, I don't need Jesus. I can clean myself up. I can be a good person on my own. The Pharisees sure thought they were good enough on their own. So Jesus goes on and He says, When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes... Through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. The point here is that we are all serving something. We can clean our houses up ourselves and do pretty well for a while, but unless we have a new master, we'll go back to our old master eventually, and we'll be worse off than we were before. One time I spoke to a counselor who uh, was, a specif- uh, was specialized in addiction, and he said that when, when addicts go back to um, their addiction after having walked away from it for a while, they don't go back and pick up where they left off they go back to where they would have been had they never quit. Think about that, right? So they, they, they leave their addiction and they start living this life and this is the alternate lifestyle they would have been living and then they go back to their addiction and they go right to there. And I think that highlights the truth that Jesus is talking about here. He's giving them and us loving, kind and a realistic warning. He's encouraging those who have put their faith in him not to ever let go of him. He's too precious of a savior. And he's letting us know we have enough to believe that through him alone, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Finally, the impact of this decision If you remember earlier, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And what he meant is that it's impossible to be on the fence about him. If you're on the fence, it means you're against him. But to be with him means he is the most significant relationship in your life. It means his word is the most precious and gracious words to you because only he has the words of eternal life. From the moment we repent of our sins and put our trust in him, he is the one who forms and shapes our most fundamental identity, not our family, not our friends, not our hobby, not our career. Nothing has a greater impact on our life than who Jesus is and our relationship to him. Which is why Matthew ends our passage with this story. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now just just imagine that, right? And this culture, nothing was thicker than blood. And in our culture now, the blood ties are still primary. And yet Jesus here is saying, who are my mother? Can you imagine One of your family members saying, Well, who's my family? He replied to them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, before Jesus' death and resurrection, his family did not believe in him. Afterward, they did. Uh, The apostle James, who wrote the book of James, Jesus' brother. Uh, The book of Jude in the New Testament, also Jesus' brother. But before his death and resurrection, we're told in John 7, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So who knows exactly why they wanted to speak with him here? But if they don't believe in him, it's pretty safe to assume that the negative attention was beginning to shine back on them, And they're trying to say, Jesus, you got to stop all this stuff. But Jesus does not go out to them when they come. Instead, Jesus says that those who do the will of his Father in heaven are his real family. This is why the New Testament church started calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because nothing was thicker than blood. And the church wanted to be able to communicate to the watching world that we, as Christians, as those united to Christ by faith and therefore united to each other, we are a family. We are the household of God. We are thicker than blood. Jesus creates a community where he becomes the center of our most fundamental identity Which means if we're united to Him, then we are actually closer to each other than we are to any other kind of relationship in this life. And maybe you've had this experience where you've traveled away from this area and you've gone somewhere else and you've met other Christians. And by virtue of the fact that you are children of God, instantaneously, you have a connection with that person that's unexplainable otherwise. Whereas you might have own family members who are unbelievers, who, who you're just not close to because you don't share this fundamental identity as a child of God. So we're closer to other Christians than we are our own family if they're not believers, closer than our friends, closer than the people we share hobbies with. There's only two options. And when we follow Christ, we follow Him with the group of people that Jesus is closest to. So if you're here today and you've put your faith in Jesus, you can rest assured that His Word, the testimony of His Spirit, is all the evidence you need. There's no other explanation for the power and influence Jesus has in this world than the explanation Jesus gives in His Word. The heavens truly do declare His glory. Only he can forgive every sin and slander. So come to him again, or maybe even for the first time, I don't know. All you who are weary and burdened, and let him give you rest. Let him remake you into a good tree that produces good fruit. You don't need a sign. The fact of his death burial, and resurrection, along with the promises of forgiveness of sin that he offers through the work of Christ and Christ alone is enough. Let's pray. Father, this is a a hard passage. The word judgment was the most prominent word in this passage. And yet we think of the preaching of Jonah, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Father, it doesn't make sense to us, but the reality of your judgment, you use in a beautiful way to drive us to you and you alone, because only Christ can forgive every sin and slander. And Father, when we're united to him by faith, we receive his mercy and grace. We know God, we know that we are your child. We know God that we have been forgiven, united to your son, given a new life, become a new creature. We've gone from being a dead tree to being an alive tree. We thank you for that, God. I pray that you would assure and affirm Christians today with this truth, that their faith is built on invincible promises. And then I pray, Father, that you would invite people who are on the fence, God, to turn to you and rest in Christ, who invites all sinners to come to him and who will be tender with us throughout this life, never breaking a bruised reed, never blowing out a barely burning wick. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.